Welcome to Blood and Fire Water. I'm your host Rashad. Over there's Dre. Hello. For tonight's case, I want to put you in the position of being a victim of a home invasion. A place that you hold so dearly can be invaded and robbed at any point in time. But let's just say that you're there. What are you going to do? What are they going to do? Where do you go? Well, this week's case, we're going to talk about a home invasion that went completely wong. Let's just get into it. Starting with the first-hand account of a survivor of this 18-minute atrocity that happened in Markham, Ontario, Canada. has been inside of an interrogation room with Detective William Gates for like a whole five hours. And he's like, just please, just please, just please. Don't lie to me. Start from the beginning and tell me everything. So Jennifer's like, alright. So check this out. <laughs> this is what happened, Pimp Daddy. On November 8th, 2010, between the hours of 9am and 12pm, Jennifer Pan wakes up. She studies some piano lessons she's got later on during the day. She plays some Facebook games on her computer. Her dad's at work. Her mom left the house with an aunt to visit her grandfather at a nursing home. Between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m., her mom comes home. She starts making dinner. Her father comes home late from work. He's usually there between 4, 4.30. This time he gets home at 5, whatever. He forgot to lock something up. He leaves with an uncle to go shopping at Home Depot and her mom starts to get ready to go line dancing at her church, something she did every single Monday. Between six and seven, dad comes home, he eats dinner, he goes to work in his office or the study, which however you want to call it. Mom leaves for dancing and Jennifer goes to her room. She comes back downstairs to meet a friend named Adrian, who's a boy and they go and watch TV in the basement. I think like he brought over some Gilmore Girl DVDs or How I Met Your Mother DVDs or some shit like that. Here's where the shit gets good. Between the hours of 10 p.m. and 12 p.m., her mother calls her father to come downstairs in a voice that Jennifer recalls means business. At this point, Jennifer's in her bedroom. She hears footsteps coming up the stairs. Then she starts to hear noise in the master bedroom. Then she hears downstairs noise. She looks out of her bedroom door to see someone in her brother's room, whom she identifies as robber number one. He sees her, and with a gun drawn, he says, quote, where's the money? She gives him $2,500 money that she had earned from serving and waiting tables and piano lessons from a book on her nightstand. While he's rummaging through the money, she shoves her phone into her pants and then her hands are tied up. He takes her downstairs and puts her on the floor. There she sees two shadows, her mother and her father who are sitting on the couch. Robbers start to argue about this is taking too long. Robber number three, whom she says she never spoke to or talked, like she never had any interaction with, he asked the father, where's the money? The father says, 
what money there there isn't any money the only money he had was sixty dollars in his wallet upstairs robber number two asks the mother for her purse the only light on in the house is from an open refrigerator they keep asking where's the money but the mother tells the robbers that there is no money the only other cash in the house is sixty dollars in her father's wallet upstairs Robber number one takes Jennifer upstairs to find the wallet and the $60. Robber number two also comes upstairs to assist in the search for this $60. They stumble upon $1,100 in U.S. currency that Jennifer discovered, you know, just like, ooh, I forgot about that. Jennifer is then taken out of the room and tied to the banister by robber number one. Her upper arms are bound to the banister, her hands are still tied together. She finagles her phone out of hiding, then robber number one hangs out upstairs and keeps yelling for everyone else to hurry up. I don't know what he thought he was doing. Robber number two goes downstairs, mom's yelling, daughter's yelling. Remarkably, no one ever reported any screaming. Jennifer hears movement going towards the basement. Then she hears yelling about, quote, where's, where's the money? Then, you lied, you lied. All you had to do was what we told you to. And then pop, pop, pop. And then they left. It wasn't until she heard them leave that she called 911. Chinese descent, 
immigrated from Vietnam and moved to Scarborough, Toronto, Canada. Han Pan, the father moved there in 79 as a political refugee, and the mother, Vic Pan, immigrated soon after. They met and they married in Toronto. They had two children, Jennifer Pan in 1986 and a son, Felix, in 1989. The parents worked at an automobile parts manufacturer called Magna. Both parents worked at the automobile's facility and grinded until they could save up enough money to purchase a home, and by 2004, they purchased a nice-sized four-bedroom home with a two-guard garage in Markham. It was the equivalent of moving on up in Canada. Once you made it, you moved up north. North of Scarborough is Markham. The family also accumulated $200,000 in the bank, drove a Mercedes-Benz and a Lexus. So ballin'. So there are expectations set on the children to put the same amount of effort that the parents did to get them this far. And the saying with children goes, you have to get them young and you got to get them early. That's, that's a terrible saying. <laughs> Jennifer started playing piano at four. The culture of an Asian family is the oldest takes care of the youngest. So Felix would just follow in his sister's footsteps. And at any point he began to waver it was Jennifer's responsibility to get him back on track. The parents had pre-planned the children's destiny. Jennifer was to become a doctor, and Felix was to become an engineer. By elementary school, Jennifer had been deemed a piano prodigy. So to challenge her even more, her parents put her into figure skating, and she was extremely talented at that as well. She would go to school, come home, practice wushu, practice piano, swim, go to figure skating practice, come home around 10, knock her homework out, help her brother knock his homework out, sleep, maybe, then get up and do it all over again. Over the course of elementary school, she would begin to inflict self-harm to deal with the stress of all the responsibilities that she had, cutting herself along her forearms. Her parents didn't buy her anything that made her feel pretty or like a girl, so there's no makeup, no pretty clothes, no newest anything. They were training this child to be a machine. They watched her like a hawk. They, they didn't let her go to school dances. Parties was a hell no. And boyfriends were off limits until she could get reduced car insurance at the age of 24. Her mom was a little more lenient about the whole social life thing. She thought her daughter should have some sort of social life. So when Jennifer would attend sleepovers, her mother would take her extremely late and then come pick her up extremely early in the morning. So, <laughs> Jennifer was able to maintain straight A's all throughout elementary and middle school. She had her sights set on becoming a piano teacher, a figure skating Olympian, and valedictorian of her middle school class. She was popular because at the Catholic school she went to, being a nerd was celebrated. She was popular because at the Catholic school she went to, being a nerd was celebrated. The more you knew, the cooler you were. So she got along with everyone, the jocks, the goth kids, the artsy fartsy kids, the hippies, the preps, and of course, the smart kids, but also the dumb kids. Which may be slightly offensive, but this is school. Know your place. I personally wouldn't call anyone's kid dumb to their face anyway. And speaking of which, I probably fit in 
the category of dumb kid, but that's neither here nor there. Either way, I had none of these things accomplished in elementary and middle school. Jennifer tore a ligament in her knee, so her figure skating dreams were shattered, but she kept at it, though. She wasn't at all any good anymore. Then graduation time came, and she expected to get all of these awards and medals and be named class valedictorian. But she got none. Not one award. Once Jennifer hit ninth grade, ninth grade hit her right back. Her grades dropped from A's to low C's and D's. She stopped winning in figure skating, although we we all knew that was going to happen. She stopped winning in figure skating, but she kept her talents in music. So to pass the bar her parents set out for her, she would create fake report cards using her old ones. So she's working on some Photoshop skills as well. She was able to pass off fake report cards while playing Mozart in the background so there is a metaphorical killer in this story is Jennifer for sure grade 11 band class is where she met a guy named Daniel Wong on a band trip to Europe long story short she has an asthma attack he like quote unquote saves her life which I don't know what that means I'm sure she would have been fine if she had just brought her inhaler, but I guess Daniel maybe coached her breathing, maybe, maybe? But to me, saying that someone saved your life is completely contextual. Jesus saves lives all the time, but I've never seen Jesus walking around. And liquor saved my life last year, and a mask saved my life this year, so who knows what it'll be next year. Hopefully it's aliens spice things up a little bit it wouldn't be until later that Jennifer realized that she made the Wong move (laughs) so Jennifer's head over heels for this Wong guy and the summer of 03 they started dating and she quickly became obsessed which is reasonable 16 17 year old I mean you meet a guy You follow him around for weeks. You get a job where he works at so you can spend even more time together. You lie to your parents about where you're sleeping so you can stay at his house. That crazy, thirsty, obsessive kind of love. But Daniel was a drug dealing, trumpet playing, Xbox gamer tag having, cheesy Dorito finger having bad boy. So he's he's got his own life to live. So... To keep up with his bad boy lifestyle of land parties and shotgunning Mountain Dew, she let her grades slip. And by slip, she completely drops the ball of her parents' dream for her, which is unacceptable. Coincidentally, it was also unacceptable for Ryerson University. Jennifer failed a calculus class, and they withdrew her early acceptance. And she apparently did not graduate high school. So what do you do? You've been faking your grades for this whole time. Parents are expecting greatness, and your scholarship gets canceled, and you don't graduate high school. You do what you've been doing that got you this far. Jennifer faked an acceptance letter, faked going to classes, and instead of, and instead of using her parents for rods, she used public transit to go to the library 
and make fake notes and buy fake books. Then she started to fake teachers. Then she started making up friends. Then she faked another acceptance letter into a pharmacology program at the University of Toronto. But dad was dad was happy. He's like, you got all these letters, like you're 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 in class. I'm gonna start buying you shit. So he bought her a laptop and he was like, You go girl. Three days a three days a week Jennifer was allowed to stay at a friend named Topaz's house to be closer to the school that she didn't go to. When in reality she was staying at the wrong guy's house. To keep the story going, Jennifer had to lie to her friends and Wong's parents to make everything in her fantasy world work. And this shit went on for a long time. So long, in fact, that it was time for Jennifer to fake graduate. So Wong probably had a VPN, which is a virtual private network, and he probably dark webbed her a transcript, faked with all A's to show her parents. So mom and dad are like, when's the graduation? And she's like, you can't come. There are not enough fake seats in the fake auditorium for this fake graduation. I invited a friend to avoid uh, jealousy. While working on that lie, she cooked up another lie that she was working at a hospital called Sick Kids, doing blood work. This is a real place, but a fake job. Assumably, so she could spend even more time with Wong. I mean, don't stop now. And her parents are like, quote, why you, <laughs> okay, not quote, why you ain't got no scrubs or a badge or a stethoscope or nothing? So one day dad's like, all right, let me take you to work. And Jennifer was like, okay. They pull up to the hospital and Jennifer hops out before the car even stops and she ran into the hospital. Like imagine being a full grown person, like a 20 something year old person lying about where you work, where you live, where you go to school and having to run into the subway that you're trying to pretend that you work at and you have to hide to keep a lie going. So the next day, her parents are like, let's call Topaz and see if Jennifer's there. And she wasn't there. So they waited for her to come home and they were like, what the fuck? Then Jennifer confessed. She had got she had not gotten into that pharmacology program at the University of Toronto. She did not work with sick kids at sick kids. And she was in fact staying at Daniel's house and dad flipped his shit. But boy, I bet Jennifer felt better after all those lies got out, right? I mean, not all of them. She still lied about graduating high school and college and all this other stuff that she was doing. But I mean, they eventually find out everything. But still, like, breath of fresh air, right? So she's grounded at 24. They take her, they take her phone and they take her laptop. They find out that she was working at a bar in another restaurant and as a piano instructor and they tell her to quit all of the other jobs but she can keep teaching piano and that's the only time that she can go outside Daniel Wong the boyfriend had to be like 
kind of upset because she's old enough to get that reduction on her car insurance, but she can't come outside. But Jennifer is again obsessed, so she does what thirsty girls do. She sneaks phone calls and sends him sexually suggestive photographs, but that only does so much for so long. So she starts to sneak to see Daniel for the wrong reasons in between piano lessons. So like I said, Jennifer's parents have her on love lockdown. She's finally given that, la- or she finally earns the last credits to graduate high school. And that's when Han Pam was like, you can never see the Wong guy ever again. <laughs> Wong was Wong for her. He was like half Filipino, half jalapeno. He was half Filipino have Chinese, which her family looked down on, and he had a record, but Jennifer resisted. Then her dad told her to get out, make a decision. You can be with him, but you can't live here, or you can live here, but you can't be with him. So she surrendered, and I don't think she made the Wong move there. Where she fucked up was she thought she could keep the attention of a 20-something-year-old while she was grounded, having to sneak around and be together. It's not going to work. So they broke up. Wong told her to get her life together. A little much. And maybe she did until she found out that Wong was dating another girl. Then like a light switch, something flipped. She told Wong that one day a man pretending to be a police officer knocked on her door. When she answered, she was bum-rushed and gang-raped. A couple days later, she checked the mail and found a bullet inside of an envelope. Which I assume is like a Canadian drive-by. Bullets aren't cheap. You don't want to waste them. Just like kind of, here's one. Caught you slipping. I kid because none of these things are true. Because Jennifer is back at playing the Wong game and lying again. So she sent a text to Daniel saying, quote, Forward this to Katrina, whom I'm assuming is the new girlfriend. Congratulations to you and your friends for winning and putting me through not only emotional pain, but physical. They raped me and beat me, and yet you win the only person that meant anything to me. Please just tell these people to leave me alone so that I may rest in peace and so that I may go easy. I've suffered enough and I don't want to suffer in my last days. Good luck and take care of Daniel for me. He's everything to me, but sadly I was never enough for him to love. Unquote. Then Jennifer allegedly attempted suicide, but was unsuccessful. Obviously. So in her limited use of a telephone at 24, she re- reconnects with a friend the guy she said she was on the phone with in the original conversation. Andrew. And they complained about each other's problems with their parents, and Andrew told her that once he contemplated putting a hit on his father. Jennifer figured, I bet I can get Daniel back if my dad was dead. And Andrew's like, I got a guy. This happened in the spring of 2010. The guy's name was Rick. The guy's name was Ricardo Duncan, but his street name was Rick. Jennifer claimed she met up with Rick and paid him $1,500 to 86 her father. 
and he basically robs her but doesn't and doesn't go through with the job so now he's slick rick now but slick rick claims that he told jennifer that he wouldn't do it so then she just let him borrow two hundred dollars and he paid her back to each his own i don't know what happened so i wasn't there But Jennifer didn't give up. Handpans got to go. A quality that if she had kept during school, she would probably be better off now and we wouldn't be talking about this shit. But, obviously not. She got Daniel to go into his bag of connections and introduced him to a man named Leonard Crawford. Which I hate this name. It reminds me so much of The Office. Everyone knows the lot. Your dentist's name is Crentis. <laughs> Crawford Street name was Homeboy, so that's what we're going to go by because I'm not saying it again. He told Daniel that the job could be done for $10,000, which is way different than $1,500. Jennifer knew that if her parents died, she would receive $500,000 in life insurance. So 10 racks is a drop in the bucket. The hit was set. Homeboy gives Daniel an iPhone to give to Jennifer as a burner phone, which is crazy, but whatever. She can pop a SIM card in and out to activate service and communicate with Homeboy about the hit. So now there are two phones. Homeboy calls two accomplices, Eric Carty and David Malvaganem, and the hit was on. November 2nd, 2010, Daniel sends a series of texts telling Jennifer that he's just not that into her. And she's like, well, call off the hit. He's like, I can't. It's already on. The only way to turn it off is to pay the $10,000 or they'll do it anyway, which is a little backwards for hitman economics. I don't know. And she's like, I'm doing this for us. But if you're not going to be with me, then, you know, hello. So he again is like, you're right and then they stay together somewhat the 6th through the 8th mass amounts of text messages are being sent between homeboy Wong and Jennifer and on the 8th Jennifer sends a text to homeboy that said quote after work okay will be game time unquote so if you haven't realized by now Jennifer is a compulsive liar and her original confession is complete bullshit when Jennifer's mother got home from the line dancing thing at her church, she was hanging out in the basement, which I assume is like their media room because the living room was probably one of those rooms you just did not go in. Jennifer goes down and says goodnight to her mother, comes upstairs, unlocks the front door, and sends a text to homeboy, quote, VIP access, unquote. Then she checks on her father and sees he's already gone to bed. Then she goes into her room and shuts the door. Now, what wasn't part of the plan was her father surviving the hit and telling his side of the story, along with brilliant investigation done by the Toronto police. So this is what they pieced together in the 18 minutes that this all went down. We know she went into her room because home security footage that was obtained from across the street shows that her bedroom light turned on and then off. 
but was also important is Jennifer turned the light on in her father's office slash study. She turned it on for a minute and then turned it off. And when she turned the study light off, that's when the figures in the home security footage began to approach the house. They walked in because the front door was open and demanded money. Vic was confronted first. One goes upstairs, grabs Han out of his bedroom, and then they are beaten into submission. The parents conversate between each other. How did they get in? To which Han replies, I don't know, I was asleep. One guy goes to get Jennifer. She hands over $2,500 of her money and another $1,100 out of her mom's money. Jennifer's then taken downstairs, then taken back upstairs, and ties her to the banister. The gunman then takes Bick and Hand down to the basement, throws a blanket over their heads, and shoots Hand twice, one in the face and one in the shoulder. Bick was then shot three times in the back of the head, and then they left. Hand wakes up shortly after what was supposed to be his dirt nap and finds his deceased wife laying next to him. Frantic, he gets up and runs out of the house. Now I know you're asking yourself, why didn't he check on his daughter, who he knew was in the house, because she wasn't allowed to go anywhere? I'll circle back to that. Here's what these wet bandits didn't take. The Lexus and the Mercedes parked in the garage. A safe that was upstairs. TVs and other electronics probably deemed valuable in the dummy's guide to home invasions. Money that was laying around in plain sight. And although it seems a bit of a stretch, they missed $40 in Bix's purse. And the most important, they left a witness in the entire crime. And I get it, they're probably, they probably ran out of room in their pockets because also in a home invasion, there are some things that you should bring like a bag to put stuff in, a weapon besides guns because guns are notoriously loud, and rope because Jennifer was tied up with shoestrings. I mean, they could have brought like zip ties or something. I mean, like a quick stop by Home Depot would have just solved all their problems. So hand collapsed in a neighbor's yard and they too called 911 after Jennifer's initial call. Police and EMTs arrive and find Jennifer upstairs tied to the banister with a cell phone in her hands, and the police were flabbergasted. Anne had been airlifted to a trauma center at Sunnybrook. Bick was pronounced dead at the scene. Jennifer was brought in for questioning that night, and police are like, you're not a suspect, we feel really bad for your loss, but how did you make that phone call to 911? which seems like a, res a reasonable request in a police investigation and something she should be able to recount in this event because it's pretty rememberable. But if you hear the phone call, it sounds like her mouth is literally in the speaker of the phone and not being yelled at from being tied behind your back. Jennifer can, can hear the 911 operator clearly, and she is speaking very clearly, 
it doesn't sound like an event that transpired that she did not know anything about. What a sketchy. All right, whatever. Police are lost for leads because this kind of shit just does not happen in Markham. And in the dummy's guide of how to police, it says on page 48, these kind of attacks don't happen at random. And more often than not, it's an inside job. No fingerprints, no DNA, nothing left at the scene at all to go off of. So they do their job and they investigate, but they keep a close eye on Jennifer. She lacked emotion at her mother's funeral. She lacked emotion visiting her father in the hospital as Han was induced in a coma to prevent any further injury to his injuries. So one day a doctor walks in and he's like, everyone, I have great news. Han's going to make a 100% recovery and everybody's happy. Everybody's high-fiving except Jennifer. Jennifer's like, aren't you afraid of infections from the, you know, bang, bang? And the doctor's like, So Jennifer gets upset. She gets up and she starts asking people for quarters to use the payphone and then goes into a hallway and makes a sketchy phone call. So now her family's onto her now too. Han comes out of his coma four days later and he's like, I remember everything. And the most damning thing he remembered very vividly was that his daughter was not in fact tied up and that she came downstairs with whatever number guys she was talking about and they were talking to each other like they were friends so suspect numero uno Jennifer Pan she goes through a series of interrogations all available on YouTube and the third one an investigator named William Gates goes about this with a particular interrogation method called the read technique Mm -hmm. now the read technique is basically uh an investigator walks in with a preconceived notion that she's guilty or he's guilty and they drive it home I think a fine example of this is in the Chris Watts case where they know he did it and they're just driving it home and driving it home and then he confesses I'd say it's a little a little much if you're in the position of someone who in fact did not do it but you try to use this technique on someone who is in fact innocent I don't know you, you'll get different results and I'm sure it's been tested and tested so hey police are allowed to lie mm-hmm. and you should at least be aware of that either way Jennifer's no match for this interrogation tactic Jennifer folds like a wet napkin and confesses to the invasion being a suicide plot going wrong. A suicide by proxy, if you will. She was promptly arrested on November 22, 2010. Cops didn't know what to do, so they go through her phone. They had been going through her phone, but... And they find that Daniel was the boyfriend, so they bring him in, and he basically snitched on himself pretty much. He told investigators that he knew what she was going to do. Nice. What Wong didn't know was the police already had Jennifer's actual phone and the burner phone provided by the hitman. 
and Wong's number was connected to what police were calling the murder phone. They were also able to basically reverse construct how she was talking or who she was talking to by tracking phone numbers that were contacted by Jennifer's burner phone. And all of the assailants were apprehended between April 14th and May 4th of 2011. The trial took a while to start as to build a solid case, and boy did they ever. Over 200 exhibits of evidence, phone records recovered by subpoena, 50 witnesses testifying that Jessica had been lying over the past 20 years. She was even fake crying in court. The trial started March 19th of 2014 and went on until December 13th, which is a long time for a trial, and everyone received life sentences without the eligibility of parole for 25 years. Eric Carty took a plea deal and received 18 years and was eligible for parole after nine, but he was found dead in his cell on April 26, 2018. Dre, what do you got for a chaser? So you told me to look up today tiger parenting. Okay. And for people who don't know what tiger parenting is, it is a term that was coined by Amy Chua, C-H-U-A. And she is a Yale um, law professor who is a um, daughter of Chinese migrant parents. Um, she coined the phrase tiger parenting or tiger mother really from uh, her book um, battle him of the tiger mother that was you know published and put out in 2011 and what tiger parenting is is different from authoritative parenting because authoritative parenting it's just all cold steel you let them know what they need to do have to do it no no negotiations i'm the parent you're the child 100% no in between. Now, tiger parenting has the same principle. Where, like, I, I'm telling you what your schedule is, what you're doing, extracurricular, extracurriculars. Um, you can't go out to play dates. You can't do sleepovers, none of that. But they also do, like, positive reinforcement and everything like that with, with tiger parenting. Granted, she, Amy, you know, she is of, you know, Asian descent and generally speaking, a lot of... Uh, People that way, they have a very huge stigma. Like when we did the with the case with um, Elisa Lamb, um, they have a huge stigma in in um, what's it called um, like mental disorders and everything like that in, in in traditional Asian culture. So she sees nothing wrong with it because Asian parents, generally speaking, they teach their kids to be they they automatically assume that their kids are more stronger than they are fragile. So you know that. They'll go into it saying, hey, you know, you're not ish, you're fat, you need to do this, you need to get better, you need to just constantly pushing. But with Tiger Parenting, they will give you positive reinforcement when you do win those things. Like, hey, congratulations. Yeah. So um, a lot of people have actually, you know, obviously coined against it because obviously it's horrible for the child in the end. But because, you know, like... She said she thinks it's okay, and I mean that's the lifestyle that she grew up in, and I mean she turned out fine. I mean she's a Yale law professor. I mean you know you can't really tell her shit from now. So it's just like, and she got a book I'm, on. I'm that. not qualified to tell her shit. <laughs> so, 
but you know, obviously, a lot of people were saying that's, that's very detrimental, and and a lot of people uh, take it back to like culture and upbringing and all that stuff. So, you know, who knows? Uh, it's awful. I, reading about it, it's it just seemed awful. It's no, it no, it sounds it sounds incredibly terrible. Yeah. But that's gonna be us for this week. That was the Jennifer Pan case. Uh, if you're more inclined to see the interrogation videos, be sure to just check them out on YouTube. You can also check us out on our socials at Instagram, uh, Blood and Fire Water Podcast, and Twitter at BFW Pod Squad. Please be sure to uh, rate and review on iTunes. It helps us incredibly more than you might ever know, and it's free ninety nine. So be sure to do that if you don't mind. Other than that, wash your hands, stay alert, and stay alive.